Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thanks so much for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Thomas Avery, and if you're not familiar with him, Thomas is a producer, composer, mixer, engineer, and musician currently working out of Austin, Texas. And Thomas has produced commercial music for clients such as CNN, AT&T, and a whole bunch more. And we haven't had anyone on the podcast before talking about composing music for film and TV. So I thought Thomas was a great person to bring on board to talk about the process of what goes into composing music for visuals and some of the challenges that go into it, because it's not quite like working on regular three and a half minute songs. Instead, there is a lot of visual cues and stuff that can really impact the way you write things. It's not your traditional arrangement like you would find in a song. So I thought Thomas was a great person to bring on to talk about this process. And funny story, Thomas is actually one of my students. We first met, he's a member of a bunch of my mix courses and my Master Mix Academy. And so I got to know him through that. And once we started chatting and I, I learned what he did, I just thought he was such a cool person to bring on here with lots of experience in this field. So uh, yeah, this I think you're going to find this interview very, very interesting. There's a lot of cool stuff that we haven't talked about here before. So with that said, let's just jump right into the interview. Thomas Avery, thank you so much for being on the Master Your Mix podcast. What's going on, man? Not much. Glad to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me. No worries, man. For people who might not know you and aren't familiar with the work you're doing, can you give us that background on how you got into music and composing and all the cool stuff you're working on? Uh, yeah, well, I've just been kind of a lifelong musician. Um, both of my parents are piano players, among other things. And uh, my dad is a composer. So I kind of got, you know, learned the ropes, so to speak, from him, um, you know, early on with playing piano and stuff. And then eventually, um, uh, writing with him as a partner, uh, mainly in the early days, writing music for CNN, like broadcast, uh, you know, somewhat uh, more like branding kind of, um, you know, that that style. And uh, then just kind of moved on from there, trying to get more into the film uh, world, like narrative projects and things like that. It's that was always kind of my dream coming up. So, you know, that's, that's where I've always tried to gear myself, but you know, as anybody knows in the music industry, you just kind of take what you get and you find your path along many different things. And, you know, now I'm kind of ending up starting to do some good film work that I'm pretty excited about. So, you know, that's, that's how I got here. <laughs> that's awesome, man. When you say that you're writing stuff for like CNN, for example, um, what kind of music are you generally working on for them? CNN typically, uh, we're looking at, you know, shorter pieces of music, 10 seconds. So oftentimes, probably the max would be like a 30 second actual, you know, thematic piece of music. Um, and, and you're always looking at writing stuff for, you know, the opening graphics of a, of a show, like every hour they, you know, it, it's kind of a, a nonstop CNN kind of goes nonstop all day as, as we all know, um, at this point, but uh, every hour or so, you know, they change hosts and then they have a whole new theme graphics and music that go with that. So like, for instance, my dad wrote the music for The Situation Room, which is like a primetime show. So, you know, whatever the news is happening, if it hits eight o'clock, it's like Wolf Blitzer Situation Room and he has a whole intro thing. So, you know, the job is really to kind of match the energy of, you know, especially these days, breaking news, like urgent um, always kind of serious. Um, but the cool thing is, you know, once you kind of get your theme music established, uh, you'll always put together a package of different, you know, definitely mix outs, you know, different versions of the main theme with different kind of mixes. And then also like longer minute to two minutes, sometimes longer beds of music that will play, you know, kind of in the background underneath uh, when they're, you know, introing the show, uh, and then like stings and, and bumps and things for when it's commercial break, you know, just a three second, like zing, got to get it in there. You know, <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of like this package. I, I think of it like branding in a way, because it's like, you get all this stuff. That's the style of this show. And, um, you know, you can kind of craft your image in a way 
through the your audio image, I, maybe you could put it that way as kind of an oxymoron almost or something. But um, yeah, it's this this sonic stamp that you're trying to put together for them. That's very cool. So as far as um, you were talking about kind of coming up with like a theme for for a show, is that something that usually they kind of like CNN will come to you and say, like, we've got the show. It's going to be suspenseful or whatever, like make something for that. Or, you know, how does that tip like or are you the person that's kind of analyzing what's going on and and composing based on that? They always have very specific thoughts. Um, In my experience, uh, you know, the bigger the client um, in this case, obviously CNN is um, pretty big client. <laughs> yeah, a big client, and they and there's you know there's lots of people's uh, jobs and livelihoods riding on the success of you know the ratings of the show um, or you know the shows, and so they're often fairly up you know I wouldn't say uptight necessarily, but they they have a uh, they know what they're looking for most of the time. Um, the problem is oftentimes. They don't have the musical language, um, just whether it's a, you know, sometimes graphics, you know, more art, art designer um, type creative people can communicate like what they're looking for. Oftentimes uh, producers have a very specific vision, you know, what they want it to look like and sound like, but they just don't have that language. So you have to interpret what they're looking for. Um, and sometimes... Uh, you know, kind of see between the lines of what sounds like they're asking for, but what what you know it should sound like. <laughs> you know, it, <laughs> it has to have a certain sound um, that's specific to news in general and specific to CNN. Um, and a lot of it's just about energy. You know, it just does it have the right um, level of uh, urgency and suspense. Um, versus, uh, you know, something more mellow and subtle. Usually that's not what they're looking for. <laughs> you know, it's pretty much up most of the time. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I mean, they, yeah, they're in the business of selling ratings and stuff, so they're very familiar with what works for them and their audience and, you know, what kind of theme they're looking for. And, you know, it, it does make sense. Like, you got a director of the of the show and they, you know, they have their vision for what it should, should look like and sound like. So it's the full package. So it makes sense that they would come to you pretty, pretty flushed out with an idea. You know, that makes sense. Um, so what does that process look like then for you when it, when it comes to composing, like where do you start with this stuff? Are they sending you the, the video, like the visuals and you write to that or what does that typically look like for you? It varies. Um, I, I personally very much prefer it when there's some kind of visual, um, to work off of, it just kind of helps to, you know, it helps you to get a, a sense of what's what they're looking for and the energy that's kind of going on. Um, you know, based on the colors and the, the tempo of cuts and things like that. Um, but also, it's just nice to have, even if it's not a finished visual, something I can lay my music on. And you know, is that working or not? Because ultimately. Um, you know, oftentimes it's just an instinctual thing. Like, does it work or does it not work? And, you know, if it works, then if I can tell that it's working, then usually everybody else can too. Um, you know, you, ha- you definitely have to like be honest with yourself. Cause there's oftentimes I'll write something and it's like, wow, this, I really like this idea. And then I put it up against the visual and it's like, mm, that's just, now I don't like it anymore. It's not working. Um, so, you know, you kind of have to curate it in that way. Sometimes if we don't have a visual, then, yeah, I don't know. That's tough. It's it's a little bit of a guess <laughs> sometimes. Um, but, you know, most of the time we try to send as many demos as possible. I mean, sometimes there'll be 15 options, um, which might be too many to choose from, you know, like overkill. But um, at the same time, it's it's like like we were saying, you know, there's a certain amount of pressure on a, on a gig like that. And people tend to like have more options than less. Yeah, no, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that for some people, they might hear that and be a little intimidated by that thinking like, Oh man, like I got to write, you know, whole many, like so many different versions of, of the same thing to, to just see if which, which one works and if any of them work, you know? So um, I'm sure, yeah, that is a little bit of high pressure for you. Um, but there's a couple things that I'd love to unpack from that. Um, and one is just like, 
the element of the visual and you'd mentioned that you know that seems to be an easier thing for you to write to because you now have something to to put your your visual or your music against um and you talked about how um you can just tell if it's working for you or not like what how do you define what works for you or not uh that's a great question i mean um ultimately you know we work in a totally subjective field maybe you know maybe uh in some ways engineering and mixing is a somewhat more scientific than composing but um, there's certainly composers who have a very scientific approach to it, um, but at the end of the day, it's being judged and felt by people. And so, um, you know, I think it's it's kind of the same thing that makes a great producer. You know, it's like you're you're striving to just trust your instincts, um, and you know, the real challenge is not for me, at least, it's not to discover whether something is working or not it's really more being able to to once i have a feeling that either it's working or not working um follow this path the one that feels like it's working and just drop the one that feels like it's not working you know being able to kind of make that judgment and um you know pick the the path that is leading you towards what feels like it's going to you know, be the right thing ultimately. Um, because you always only have so much time. And then if you follow down a path that doesn't feel right and it continues to not feel right, then you're just wasting time. You know, that makes sense. Yeah. So then how does the visual actually impact the music that you're working on? Like, are you, are you paying attention? Like you kind of said that you, you'll be watching like the pacing of the cuts and that kind of stuff. Is that then determining like the tempo of your music or like time signatures and that kind of stuff? Or is there even like a set tempo at all? Most of the time, it's... Okay, sometimes it's definitely uh, edited to a piece of music. Um, I'm sure that if I wanted to ask whoever, you know, the editor, what tempo, you know, if there was a tempo they were editing to, you know, what was it so I can match it. But you don't really need to do that because if you can tell that there's a tempo, then you can figure it out. Um, You know, you don't have to... There's never any reason to hit every single cut um, because even if something is cut that way, uh, if the music is locked too much onto it, it can quickly feel sort of cheesy and, and too intentional, not organic, you know, not a natural feeling. Um, I feel like in film trailers these days, like action and suspense, there's a lot of time the music and the, and the picture is cut hard cuts exactly like bam, 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 you know, it's like... <laughs> Cut, cut, action. So, like, there's a place for that for sure. Um, when it comes to the CNN stuff, typically, uh, it's it's more about um, you know, are the cuts uh, generally speaking quick or slow? Um, you know, is it something that feels like I need to have a lot of rhythmic energy to keep up with the cuts on the screen? Um, or is it something that's a little bit slower of cuts to where maybe something a little more thematic and, you know, melodic over the top can be a better fit? You know, it's like, it's kind of just your gut reaction when you look at it. Um, and I always try to let that kind of guide where I'm going. Um, but you know, the cup, the two main things really for me is the rhythm, like we were just talking about and the color, you know, um, it sometimes it's bright, you know, uh, really fun, like yellow. The one I recently worked on was like bright yellow, like lightning bolts kind of looking things and like purple. It's just like really fun. So I just felt like it needed to be like up more of a pop energy. Um, but for the stuff that's like in the newsroom, like really serious, it's like, you know, it's definitely a more subdued, um, mood, but you always have to have a strong rhythm. There always has to be a strong pulse and rhythm for this particular job. You know, it's if it doesn't have enough, they always come back and want more energy, and that basically means more <laughs> drums. <laughs> Maybe more strings, but mostly more drums. <laughs> for sure, that makes that makes a lot of sense, especially for those like intense kind of themes where like 
you, you're trying to like induce like anxiety almost with with the pace of the music sometimes, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> yeah, I know. Sometimes I think about that and I'm like, well, you know, who am I? It's not really my place to judge whether or not this is healthy for society, but um, <laughs> I'm going to try to match this energy. <laughs> but that, you know, it's it's interesting though because you know we on this podcast a lot of people will talk about just feel and and how you want your music to connect with someone. And most of the time people are talking about it from a, like a pop music perspective or rock music perspective and that kind of thing. But the stuff that you're doing has just as much, if not more of that feel in, in there because it's matching with the visuals and, you know, it is really trying to create a specific, like it's, it's, it's written to, to create those emotions for people. Absolutely. Um, you know, it composing in general to, you know, writing to picture scoring, Whatever kind of picture it is, whether it's broadcast, news, sports, movies, or TV documentaries, whatever, it's very intentional, um, you know. And when you're working on records, often, you know, a lot of the times, the best records are kind of intentional. I mean, that's definitely a part of songwriting and stuff that's important. Um, but it can be a little bit more fuzzy around the edges, you know. Whereas when you're doing this kind of stuff, it's like. It really needs to fit in this box. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and you'd mentioned that sometimes you're writing stuff that's anywhere from like three seconds to, you know, 30 seconds. And I imagine that that in itself creates a challenge because how do you create feel in three seconds, you know, <laughs> versus yeah, if you have a little bit more time, you get a little bit more room to build something and, and do that. So for those shorter kind of clips and stings and that kind of thing, are they usually just more like sound effect based or are you still trying to like create a bigger picture there? Most of the time, uh, the, the little short three second cuts and stuff that's based on like the bigger piece that we wrote. Um, it's like coming out of that package. Um, and you know, to be able to get, um, I feel like to be able to get a certain energy across in three seconds is kind of encapsulates TV and especially news in general, it's like the short attention span. So, you know, attention to detail on that stuff is important, but um, most of the time where we start is kind of the main theme, which is 10 to maybe 30 seconds. Sometimes most of the time it's like 10 to 12 or 15 seconds. Um, And that's basically enough time to get one idea across. Um, So when we're writing demos, um, you have to have this sort of idea about how you can expand it outwards, but we're always starting from small, um, like 10 seconds, and then expanding outwards when they need a longer piece of music. And then when it comes to the shorter little uh, stings and things, sometimes I'll just literally take the last two beats of a demo that I wrote and sort of edit that to make it be the, you know, a sting. Um Sometimes if it's a bigger project or, you know, we need a bunch of them, we'll, you know, start actually crafting and writing those little short uh, stings based on the instruments that we've used, you know, for the rest of the piece. The ability to get your musical idea across really quickly is very challenging to me. Um, It's always been hard and it continues to be hard. Um, you know, like I said, I've learned from my dad. He's been doing this for a really long time, like 30 years. And he's so good at it. You know, he's just so good at kind of, okay, I'll just get this idea right out, like super quick, you know. And I'll oftentimes I'll be working on something and I'll write, you know, three or five demos or something. And I'm feeling like pretty good about them. And, um, you know, they're still a work in progress. And then I'll go meet up with my dad and he'll have written like eight and they're all like done. <laughs> you know, and it's like, ah, oh, man. I still have a lot to learn, um, but yeah, it, it's uh, it's a un- that's a unique challenge of that job in particular. Um, and what I found is that since I got used to kind of doing it that way, sometimes it's a little tricky for me to get myself into the right headspace to write, you know, a two and a half minute piece of music, um, whether it's for like a you know a, a piece of underscore in a film or or like a you know a longer kind of thematic. Uh, you know, video, um, sometimes in advertising, you know, a lot of stuff for advertising is 30 seconds or a minute, you know, traditionally. 
So a minute long piece is a plenty of time to have something develop, you know, have a theme and have a little development on it and maybe move to somewhere else and kind of wrap it back up. You know, 12 seconds is not enough time to do any of that stuff. <laughs> you just get one sh- kind of one shot. <laughs> yeah, it's not like you're like doing like four bars of intro and like, you know, having like that kind of that kind of arrangement, you know. It'd be over by then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you brought up an interesting uh, an interesting topic there, which is that um, you said that typically these little short stings, like these little three second things, often are little pieces of the bigger picture and the the more thematic, longer longer uh, pieces that you're writing. Does that in itself make it harder to write? Because are you are you thinking of these little things along the way, thinking like that's the three second clip, and like this is the ten second one, this is the thirty? Like, are you thinking about writing that way and trying to? like figure out how it's going to break down or are you just kind of going from the big one and being like, okay, we'll figure it out afterwards. Um, ideally you have a, a pretty clear picture as clear a picture of pos- as possible of the ultimate, you know, full package. Um, it just definitely doesn't always work out that way. Um, you know, sometimes you'll spend a lot of time on one piece for a demo and put together all this extra stuff and really think like, you know, have a great con- conceptual, uh, you know, idea about how you want the the whole thing to come out, and then you write one other demo, and you spent half the time on it, and you just kind of get it done, and then they fall in love with the the second demo. So you're like, oh, whoops, okay, well, I guess we need to craft all this other stuff after the fact. <laughs> um, but you know, kind of what the the way I would um, describe that process is it's similar to, um, I mean, it's very similar to making a record with a band. You know, any as much pre-production as you can put into it, and as much um, arrangement and uh, you know conversation about what you ultimately want it to sound like and you know feel like and and all that stuff. Um, the more you can put in on the front, the easier you'll make it for yourself later. And you, and most of the time, you know, the best stuff goes that way it, it kind of has a clear sense all the way through this from the start to the finish um about what it should be and it's definitely no different when it comes to composing um but you know sometimes it works that way and sometimes it doesn't and you know the most important thing i guess is to just you know try to trust your instinct along the path like i was saying earlier you know just stick to stick to what you trust and you know <laughs> If nothing's working, then you still have to finish something, so you, you have to persevere. <laughs> that brings up another question that I had for you, which is about writer's block. And you know, there's, I'm sure that there's been times where you just like sat in front of your computer and been like, I don't know what to write. <laughs> how do you how do you deal with writer's block? Because if you're if you're having to produce like you know ten or fifteen versions of something, that's a lot of pressure, right? So you know, what, what's your approach to that? I would say that that happens on almost every project. Uh, it's it feels or it's starting to feel like um, it's maybe part of the process. Um, you know the the blank page uh, concept that's just it's mostly about getting started. You know, once you have something, anything that's working, at least a little bit, it's much easier to to just kind of follow it. Um, but when you're starting, you know that's that's kind of the hardest, uh, the hardest thing, really. And what I would say, you know, what helps me the most is just getting as many ideas out as fast as possible at the beginning. Just start writing something. Um, no pressure or or or, or less pressure um, because you say, well, I'm just going to come up with ten ideas as fast as I can, and maybe three or four of them will I'll keep working on. That way, if you start writing something and it doesn't feel right, you don't have to be like, "Oh my god, I can't do it." You know, I'm a I'm a failure and a disaster. You can just be like, "Okay, well, this isn't one of the ones that's going to work anyway." Um, and sometimes when when you go through that process, you know, I'll write something and be like, "Oh no, this is definitely not working. I really don't like that." Um, but so I'll just close it, open another project, work on a few other things, and then maybe come back the next day. And revisit that first idea that I didn't like, and suddenly, for whatever reason, it I can see a path with it. You know, I can just I'm like, okay, well, something about this makes sense now. 
Um, so, you know, it's like getting started and just getting a little bit of momentum to push you through the beginning uh, stages of a new project. Um, that is super helpful. Um, eventually, you're able to just start relying on your skills and knowledge, you know, what you've learned throughout your uh, however much you've done in your career. You know, you just start to lean on that as you get closer to the end. Um, but the beginning part is where, you know, you have to find some way to, to get yourself going get the, to get the mojo going. Um, yeah, it, that's, that's the only thing that I found that works, you know, and you still get stuck, you know, mm-hmm. all the time. But I'm sure that, like you said, like you can re- you can always go back to these things and and uh, you know develop them tomorrow or whatever you know. And sometimes having those ideas in the bank are sometimes great springboards for whenever uh, something uh, whenever you need to make something in that style another time, right? Like I, I remember chatting with a local composer who does a lot of work for uh, a lot of the Weather Network stuff around here, and I remember him saying that like he frequently repurposes content, you know, or stuff that, like old ideas that he experimented with back then. And, and, uh, you know, maybe at the time he hated them and now they're like, Oh, that's, that's the idea. You know, and sometimes like he said, that's how he, he'll, he'll do it with writer, writer's block as well, because, you know, he might, he might not know what to do, but he'll just open up old sessions and see like, how do I develop these, you know? And, and sometimes that's another great way to, to deal with it. Absolutely. I mean, it, there's never, nothing's ever truly wasted. Um, that's a, that's a really good point. It's, there's no, there's no reason to, um, be too hard on one piece that doesn't feel quite right for this particular project at all. Um, you just got to be able to quickly move on and be like, okay, you know, save that one for the bank. Um, I've definitely had that experience. I had a, I wrote a demo one time for like, a a luxury segment that they were doing on, you know, is it, basically a show about Ferraris, you know, it's like, um, so I wrote this thing that I thought was like sleek and cool. Um, and I thought it really fit. They didn't pick it. Um, and I was, I I remember feeling like, well, I thought that was pretty good for that. Um, but they didn't pick it. So I just kept it, saved it, stored it away for later. And then, um, a few years after that, they, uh, this was all on CNN. They started, uh, they, they did a special about, um, the opioid crisis. And I wrote some demos, but I also just found that one and threw it in there. Um, honestly, didn't even think about it that much. And they ended up picking that one. And that was my first piece of music that uh, played on broadcast. So it's like, amazing. You have no, <laughs> literally no idea. And yeah, I had to kind of open it. I had to open up the project and, you know, tweak a, a couple things here and there. Um, but yeah, the, the idea part of it was done. You know, I, it was I had already done that on a previous project, so you never know where where something might go. That's such a cool story, like <laughs> such a a big occasion in your life, and to have it be something that like you had worked on in the past and got rejected with. Uh, yeah, that's, that's definitely a, a cool story of perseverance with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it was definitely a good feeling. I mean, I definitely remember like. Flipping on the news at you know seven forty five or whatever it was supposed to be on and you know watching it on TV, um, it was you know that's the I feel like in so much of the work in the music industry and and you know any arts and entertainment um, industries it's it's so much about just sticking around you know um, just and dealing with that failure. Everybody talks about it, you know, but it's kind of like, okay, yeah, whatever, until it happens. And you're like, oh, okay. (laughs) You know, it's true. It works that way, kind (laughs) of. But that's an interesting topic as well, because, yeah, you're constantly dealing with rejection in your line of work. You know, they only need to pick one song. But if you're submitting 10 songs, nine of your ideas are getting rejected. So and, and you may feel that some of those other ideas are the better idea. Right. Like you have that attachment to the music. So, you know, how do you deal with that rejection? Like how, how has that become a thing or how have you learned to just like, you know, deflect it and focus on other things and not get hung up on it? Well, time, cause that used to suck. You know, it, it still sucks sometimes, but at first it was so hard to work your ass off and then <laughs> they're sorry. You know, um, <laughs> if they pick one of your pieces, that's, huge celebration you know most of the time it's you know zero especially at the beginning 
Um, but you know, I, I've never really made this comparison before, but it, when the way that you just, uh, just described the process sounds a lot like baseball and which I grew up playing baseball and love baseball. And, um, you know, it's the, that famous kind of quote about baseball is, you know, three, 30% is, is great. You know, like in every other, in every other aspect, you'd consider that a complete failure, but in baseball, you could be the MVP, you know? Um, so it, it is just kind of getting your, um, getting your perspective right and trying to be able to see the bigger picture, you know, that, um, the failure is, is just a part of the, a part of the, um, process. And it's, you know, failure, I feel like a failure should be a different word for, for what we're describing, you know, cause it technically is failure, but it ideally doesn't feel that way, you know? Um, you should always be able to find something positive about completing and submitting demos. You know, that's, that's a pretty big achievement in itself for most people. Hardly anybody who's aspiring to be a composer, it has the, the opportunity or the, you know, kind of confidence and wherewithal to actually submit music to be judged like that, uh, by somebody else. It's definitely a huge challenge. And I, you know, I always, try to remember that even if I don't get something like, okay, what you did, you know, good job on submitting that stuff. You know, you did it, got it on time, hit your deadline, you know, you tried your best and, you know, maybe next time. (laughs) (laughs) That's a healthy way to look at it for sure. You have to just be ready to just move on and, and just persevere and keep going because obviously it works, you know, and you've been at this for a long time. And, you know, if, if 30% of your songs made it, then, you know, that that's incredible. Right. Or even a 10% of them make it, you know, like <laughs> more likely that's the, the number you're looking at. <laughs> yeah. And, but I mean, it's, it's one of those things where when you actually land a song on these things, I'm sure it could be fairly lucrative in the end as well. And, you know, these songs get played over and over again and, you know, all the royalties and all that stuff can, can, um, you know, help you out in the end. So I, I, I definitely want to talk about that um, in a second, but you brought up another good idea there, which was that um, just the, just the concept of even finishing your music to get it to the point uh, where you can actually submit it for this stuff. That's something that a lot of people really struggle with. You know, when, even when it comes to like working in like pop music or rock music, that kind of stuff, you know, a lot of people have a hard time reaching a point with their music where they know that they're done with it and that it's ready to be judged and released and all that kind of stuff. So how do you get to that point? Like, is there, is there anything in your process where you're just like, cool, this is done, like it's ready to go? Or are you always kind of just sending things that feel half finished? Um, ideally not half finished, but, you know, maybe more like 80%, um, 90%. I think I have had experiences where I'm like, that is 100% done. I'm I'm super pumped about it. Sounds great. Um, you know, you're judging it based on multiple factors, you know, obviously the musical content, but you're also judging the production and the mix and, um, you know, the actual style, uh, put up against, uh, the picture in my case. Um, but it, the same thing goes for, um, you know, mixing. I find that, for me, I think mixing records is much more difficult for me to feel like it's finished. Um, even though when I'm composing pieces of music, I have to mix that myself too. Um, but something about the process of kind of mixing as you go when you compose, um, it helps me to feel like things are a little bit closer to finished. But I do feel like at the end of the day, you kind of just have to most of the time you kind of have to just let it go. Um, it's, it's a definitely, um, you know, some kind of metaphor for life. You know, you just, <laughs> at some point it's as good as it's going to be at this stage in your life and your abilities and your, uh, you know, maturity or whatever it is. Uh, and you just have to let it go and, you know, tell good luck and see what happens because at the end of the day, um, you know, even, a band that's famous for having a one hit wonder wrote a million other songs. You know, you, you can't just do one thing. You have to keep going. You have to keep doing more. Always, you always have to be pushing to the next thing and continuing to improve. Um, 
that's the only way anybody's become successful. And, and you know, it's like got to move on quick. Hans Zimmer, you know, who's the you know most probably well known film composer besides John Williams, maybe he still does multiple, multiple movies, many movies every year. You know, he's always pushing to the next thing. He's never just like, oh, cool, another Oscar for best score. I guess I'll just chill now. You know, it's it's always pushing to, to something else. Um, so is it ever finished? Just, I can think of one example where the music just really settled in, really, uh, I quickly felt like it was the right fit. I sub- submitted the music and there was almost no revisions. They just were like, cool, this is perfect. We'd love it. As for this podcast called The Plot Thickens uh, for Turner Classic Movies. And um, that is the very much the rare exception <laughs> to the rule. It's it's almost always, uh, okay, here we go. I hope it works. And then if it does work, you're like, Whew, glad, you know, that was cool. Um, you know, most of the time it's... Uh, that's not how it goes. Even if your piece gets selected, you don't usually feel like I really knocked that one out of the park, you know, yeah. it's a rare feeling. Yeah. Is there a lot of room for revisions with this stuff? Like when you're working with CNN and that kind of thing, or is it pretty much like they need things done in one shot? Cause they just don't have the time. It definitely depends on the, on the show. Um, you know, um, with CNN, it's almost always like a two week turnaround. So, um, you might have to do a fair amount of revisions, but you might also be pulling all nighters because um, it's just got to get done fast. But for uh, for other things like a lot of podcasts and things, which you know I've gotten to do a few different podcasts, and I love working on on that because you know it's an, an only audio environment, so the music has a just sort of a different role. There often will be you know more more revisions. Um, possibly on something like that or or at least more time to do them so I can be more thoughtful about, you know, taking the notes and and figuring out what to do. Um but I would say generally as a rule if they like your piece, if the client likes the piece of music that you wrote, they're not going to have too much to say to change it. They're kind of either going to like it or not like it. Um that's been my experience. And a lot of that's just because, you know, like we were saying earlier, they just don't have the language, you know, or, or the knowledge, you know, um, as a, somebody that works in audio, you know, the capabilities you have on the mix, you know, you, oh, we can just change that melody or we can just take, take out that drum or, you know, most people don't understand that. So they just hear it and they're like, eh, it either works or it doesn't. And which is totally valid, you know, so you, you just try to hit the mark as close as you can and. Um, understand that revisions, you know, because you, you can mess stuff up on revisions too. Um, you can, <laughs> yeah, revisions doesn't always mean it's going to be better. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be real careful with what you're changing because, um, sometimes you might change, you, you might take out the one thing that was their favorite thing about the piece because you just misinterpreted what they were asking you to do. Uh, most of the time it's going to be more subtle stuff on the revisions because, like I said, they already like the piece. You know, they don't want that to change um, at its core. And they're not going to ask you to do some giant change. You know, um, on a film score, it's definitely a little different. Um, in my experience working on this feature film, Savannah Haunting, last year, uh, the director and producer they were much more involved in the revision process because um, you know the way that the music was playing against the action on the screen, you know, it was just much more tied to that um, than a piece of music that's written as sort of a sonic ID or brand for a TV show. Um, so in that case, a lot of times I was just trying to write something as fast as I could on this on the movie, just get it to them, knowing that they're going to come back and say, okay, let's try to start that, you know, one second sooner and fade it out a little bit later, um, and then really try to hit this one moment at you know, give me the SMPT code, the sound time, sound code, um, and try to hit you know, much more detailed revisions on on film stuff and narrative stuff. I would say, yeah, that's interesting, and it, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the idea of like knowing when you're done with the track and how you said like you know, you often don't feel like you're done with it, but 
it's it's interesting because you know you're you're writing so many different ideas and like you said there like at the end of the day people are just quickly listening to it and being like yeah that's the one or you know this one here I don't like that kind of thing so like they're they're taking a really big big picture look at it and most of these people aren't coming back to you I'm sure being like oh can you like boost this minute like you know 500 hertz on this on the cello here or whatever you know what I mean like most people don't have that language like you said so you know it's you kind of just you can I'm not saying this as like a way to imply laziness but like you can you can get away with like not necessarily having it be like perfect by your technical standards because these people at the end of the day it's like the big picture stuff that really matters more to them than the actual technical perfection of it right i think you nailed it right there i mean it's it's definitely not laziness <laughs> i can't i can't uh endorse that <laughs> of course but you could also spend like hours and hours and hours trying to like get that last 5% and then have the person listen to it and be like oh we don't like this at all and then you wasted so much time for something that really didn't matter in the end, you know? Exactly. It's almost like you can push yourself over uh, the threshold of, uh, you know, of of ideal, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like, there's a sweet spot in some mm-hmm. ways, I think, most of the time. Uh, and if you push past that a little, it's fine. Or if you don't quite hit it, it's fine. But if you go into perfection mode and you can't stop, and you just keep going and going and going. You'll start unraveling what made you know the piece of music have its character. I think. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's it's always big picture to the people listening. Always. No, nobody knows what gear you use. Nobody knows what you could do with it. It's it's really like, are they feeling that emotion? Is it matching? In your case, is it matching the picture and everything that you're seeing on screen? And you know, giving them that that feel that ultimately that background music needs. Mm-hmm. That's, that's right on, man. <laughs> I said it better myself. <laughs> awesome. We kind of touched on this briefly, but um, the idea of like getting paid for this stuff, you know, is this, is this the kind of field where I'm assuming you probably get paid like a flat fee for stuff and then it's just more royalty based on the, on the back end? Is that, is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, um, it's pretty much like anything in, in uh, music, audio production world. It's, Certain jobs have specific hourly or daily uh, rates that apply, um, but generally speaking, you know, I tend to work on a project-to-project basis. That's that's ideal, um, just because you know how much you're getting paid up front, and uh, you know whether or not there's possibility of royalties after the fact. Um, so you you can kind of plan things around that. Uh, I hate getting in a situation where it's an hourly uh, thing and it's dragging on and it's taking too long and you feel like you're charging a lot and there's a lot of hours coming through and it can limit your freedom in some ways, you know? Um, so I tend to try to get a decent fee up front and then I ask myself whether or not there's going to be royalties. Something like CNN, um, you know, it, if you have music on primetime CNN, your royalties are paying the bills, you know. <laughs> um, if you're writing something for CNN Espanol and it's, you know, not even playing in the U.S., you might not get any royalties. So there there are certainly things to, to know and learn about that whole process. Podcasts, for example, uh, don't pay any royalties, as far as I know. Um so, you know, if you're not getting any royalties, then you definitely got to negotiate your your upfront cost, right? Your upfront fee. Um, for films, it's obviously movies are going to be getting royalties. Uh, if it gets to play in a theater, you know, there's certain, I, I'm pretty sure there's a certain amount of royalties for that that are different than um, streaming or, uh, you know, DVDs <laughs> or, you know, mm-hmm. buying it on Amazon or whatever. Um, so all these things you have to just sort of figure out on your own. Um, but when you're starting out, you know, for me, like in the film world, uh, if I don't, you know, I, I, when I first started out without any experience on a movie, you know, I'm I'm basically just, I need to get this credit. Right. Um, so you have no, you have very little way to know how many royalties you're going to get, you know, how much you'll get paid on the back end. Because, you know, you can't predict how successful something will be, necessarily. 
Um, but on the front end, you know, if it's a, a movie that's funded by Lifetime or something, you know, which I've gotten to work as an engineer on, uh, you know, projects for, uh, you know, I did a movie for Lifetime and that's, you know, they're unlimited budget, but you're, you're not, um, you know, in that case, I'm not getting royalties, right? So I was the engineer. But you can ask for what you want, pretty much, if you're hired for that job. But if it's an indie movie, you know, you're just kind of negotiating. So it's mm-hmm. like, it's always a dance. I mean, that's a tough question. Um, and I'm certainly not <laughs> not a great <laughs> businessman. I just do my best, you know. Um, but, I, you know, if you can land a job on broadcast uh, TV, then... And that's the way to go. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like you said, too, like in the in those early days, you don't really know what the back end royalties could look like. But you at least have to be prepared for that kind of stuff. Right. Like you have to you have to figure out that there is back money, back end money that can be made. Right. So um, as far as and, and I think this applies to even if people are listening to this and they're not composing for film or TV, it's like even if you're writing music and releasing it commercially or, you know, you just put out your music in the wild, whatever, there is still royalty. There are still royalties that you can collect from different organizations to, you know, if, if you're playing shows and like you can get paid to have your to play shows, you know, like uh, for performance royalties and that kind of stuff. Um, are there any specific royalty associations that you'd recommend people look into to, to collect on back end stuff? Yeah. Um, for film and TV stuff, most people use what I use BMI. Um, mm-hmm. Although, I mean, there's, you know, if you go to BMI.com, they're definitely advertising lots of big artists that they, that they uh, represent. So BMI is a great one, and then ASCAP is the other uh, the other one that I think traditionally has been more of a singer songwriter uh, kind of you know maybe not singer songwriter but a songwriters uh, organization. Um, and then I, I guess the other one, CSAC. Uh, I want to say that's Canadian. I'm not sure. You might know. In, in Canada, <laughs> there's SoCan, but okay. same idea. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, so it's that that one I know is. Uh, guess it's a little bit smaller i feel like ascap and bmi are the big main two um and you know it's free to free to to get representation you just you have to have something to publish and um you know you you can just get in touch with for example bmi um if you get in touch with them through their website they'll have a representative you know chat on the phone and help you through the process super helpful on the process of getting your music out uh, you know, properly represented because, you know, that's a, that's somewhat of a challenge too. You know, there, there's lots of things that you have to do to make sure that people know that your music is getting played and listened to by, you know, however many people. Um, so they're very helpful in that department and it's free. Um, so, you know, I love BMI. It's been a great experience for me. Um, yeah, when I did this film, I had to create a cue sheet, um, which is, all basically every single time I had music enter and exit in the whole movie, um, it had to be listed on a sheet. And then that's the way they know when my, when the movie gets played or purchased, they know how much of my music got actually used based on that cue sheet. Um, if you're working on a bigger project, they'll have somebody do that for you. But in my case, I had to do it myself, (laughs) which was a bit tedious after working so hard on this movie, writing all this music. And then I had to go back and like (laughs) write down each single one, you know, type it out. It took a pretty long time. Um, But yeah, (laughs) that's a long answer because it's complicated. You know, that whole world is is tough to explain. It's been taking me a long time to learn what I know. And I still don't know everything. That's for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I also don't fully like I feel like there's probably a lot more organizations than I know personally, but I know that, um, yeah, there's like your performance royalties, which is whenever it's getting played on you know, radio or in a, you know, in a store or whatever, um, you get, you get paid for that. Even, even, even if you're performing live, I know that, uh, your music can qualify for performance royalties. Um, and there's, there's even like the mechanical royalty side of it, which is other organizations. And that has to do more with like, if you're duplicating the files and if, you know, let's say that someone's putting it on DVD and, you know, now there's so many copies of that. Or if you write a song and someone puts it on their CD, then depending on how many albums they put out, there's a royalty for that, that kind of thing too. So, um, 
yeah, I mean, this is definitely not legal advice that we're providing the listeners with, but you know, definitely look into it. You know, there are a lot of different uh, rights that you're that you qualify for and and uh, royalties that you qualify for once you've released your music in the wild. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to put that out there just so people can get a sense of you know what options there might be for that kind of thing. I would definitely say to do your research when you're about to release music, because, um, like you said, it's there's lots of different ways to get income. And when you're trying to make a living doing this kind of stuff that we do, you got to have as many sources of income as you can, because at any point one could just dry up or it could be a slow time or, um, you know, you, you might, who knows what might happen. You need yeah. to, you need to have, you need to be diversified for sure. Um, you might not even know that your song's getting played somewhere foreign and that it's big there, you know? So that happens all the time. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely worth like setting yourself up with these organizations. And like you said, they're free to sign up for. And these people, it's like their job to just figure out what mo- what money they owe you. So um, it's definitely worth people looking into these organizations. Yeah. And like you said, like ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, uh, if you're in Canada, SOCAN. Um, I know like um, some of the other ones are like Audium. There's Sound Exchange, like all these other companies out there that, you know, just look at, look them up and you'll find, you'll find some great resources to collect some money. And for a lot of people that are listening to this, they might not even know that there a lot of these organizations hold on to money, even if you haven't registered yet. So you might actually have royalties sitting around at some of these organizations waiting to be paid to you. So you just have to do your due diligence and sign up and you can get a nice first royalty check, which, which is always encouraging. Yeah. And that's a really good point. Cause I used to have anxiety about that. Like, Oh no, did I not do it right? It, eventually, you know, if you're working and you're doing and you, and you're continuing to put stuff out, um, and especially if you're having, you know, even a little bit of success, you'll figure it out eventually. And yeah, they're, they're keeping track of it regardless. You know, they're not just like, Oh, well you did, you started it last week. So, you know, sorry, this hundred thousand dollars is ours now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like that. Totally. Well, last question I want to ask you, uh, is for anyone who's considering becoming a composer themselves, what is the best way to get into being a professional composer? Well, you have to have somebody open the door for you somehow. Um, a great way to do it, probably the best way to do it, is to look for a mentor who, well, first of all, you have to get as many skills as you can um, on your own. There's tons of resources for it, um, even in terms of uh, you know what you need to invest. I would, I use Logic Pro, so, uh, you know, Quick shout out. Logic is great. It's very affordable. Basically, if you have a, a computer and Logic, you can do, you can be a composer, like period. And maybe you need a controller keyboard to play the, the parts of the instruments and stuff. Um, but if you do that for like 200 bucks for Logic and, you know, however much for a computer most people already have, um, then you can start doing it. And after that, um, there's really just kind of two things I, I would suggest, and, and this is more or less how it shook out for me. Mentors, as many as you can, people who actually work in the industry, um, you know, they may, you may find them through a school, um, through online, you know, Berkeley classes is an interesting way to do it if, if you don't want to fully go all the way into, um, you know, a, a full college program or trade school uh you can just reach out to people you can um find local artists and composers and just try to talk to them try to meet them at various events things like that um and then just prove yourself you know just just be confident with your work and understand that you're starting out and you know professional composers will understand that everybody has mentors everybody understands when you start you basically have no idea what you're doing. Um, so most people will be gracious. Um, if you live in LA, uh, it might be a little bit more challenging, um, just because it's so much competition, but, um, even there, you know, just kind of grit and confidence in talking to people go a long Mm -hmm. way. And then the other thing is just find somebody who will let you put your music on their movie. (laughs) Uh, even if it's free, you know, Student works are great because it's low pressure and 
um, maybe more uh, even level to your abilities at the time when you're starting out. Um, that's just a great way to do it. And if you find a director or filmmaker who you really enjoy working with, as they continue to build up their career and make movies, um, ideally you, the two of you can continue working together. Um, that's kind of the dream scenario for film composers and filmmakers. You know, there's tons of examples of directors and composers that have worked together over the years um, and make great stuff. So it, it's get your skills together and then get your relationships together. <laughs> that's that's yeah. it, really. I love that. Yeah, I think that that's a, a great answer. And I, I've even seen that in my in my own experiences, too. Like I used to work in audio post-production and I would always see the same composers coming through all the time because, you know, they, they would be working with the same directors and it was like always a team. Right. People people I mean, people are, in, are inherently lazy. And when they find someone that they like, they're going to stick with that person. Right. They don't want to experiment and try to find someone new just for the sake of doing that. Right. It's, it's way more work. So when you're comfortable with somebody, you're going to continue to work with that that person. Um and uh, so, yeah, I mean, building those relationships, like you said, and I think the student thing is a great example of, uh, you know, a level playing field that you can get into and, and build. These people are people that are pursuing their careers as well. So, like, you kind of grow together and, and build and build and build. So, uh, yeah, I love that answer, man. That, that was great. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, I don't want to keep you keep you any longer, but uh, for people who want to learn more about you and the kind of music you're working on and, and all the other, other projects you're up to, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, you can look at uh, my website, Avery Music Productions. Uh, that has, you know, it's pretty much updated with my current stuff. It's, uh, you know, web development is an online presence is, I think, notoriously challenging for um, <laughs> composers <laughs> and artists. It's, it's, you know, not always the first thing you want to do. Uh, but yeah, my website, Avery Music Productions, has a bunch of good stuff. And, um, you know, I... I have uh, out on Instagram my handles Tom 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 T O H M underscore T O H M underscore T O H M. Uh, there's not a ton of stuff on there, but hopefully there <laughs> will be soon. Uh, you know, it's it's like that game is always challenging. Um, but yeah, uh, I'd love to. You know, if there if anybody has any questions or anything like that, you know, feel free to reach out either one of those two ways. And uh, happy to talk or you know whatever see your see your stuff if you got something to show you know get started <laughs> awesome man well there we go people we got this connection right here right this is for the people who want to who want to get into this start start uh, using tom as your as your mentor yeah <laughs> awesome man well i really appreciate you being on here and i think that uh this is something that we haven't had a guest on the podcast talking about composing before so um i think it's a lot of really interesting stuff that'll be new to people and and hopefully it's inspired a bunch of other people i'm sure it has Cool. Yeah, I hope so too, man. I really appreciate you uh, having me on here, and you know, I love the work that you're doing. And you know, uh, full disclosure, I, I met you through your mixing uh, programs online, and uh, it's been super helpful for me as I kind of improve that area of my skill set for sure. So I, I appreciate what you're doing. Thanks, man. I appreciate having you supporting everything we do, and um, yeah, man, it's been great to see your growth over the time. And and uh, yeah, man, keep up all the great work. Right on. All right. Well, we'll talk soon. So that was my interview with Thomas Avery, and that was awesome. I really enjoyed learning about the composing side of things. It's a nice break from some of the stuff we've talked about on the podcast up to this point. And it was really interesting to hear his process behind how he writes music to the visuals and some of the challenges that go into it. And I thought it was really important to get into some of the discussion about things like dealing with writer's block and coping with rejection, because that is stuff that any composer or anyone who's writing music is going to deal with at some point. And it's important to realize that you're definitely not alone in that. You know, we all experience that and we all have to learn how to deal with it without getting discouraged and just completely giving up. So I'm glad that we were able to talk about that. And it was great to hear some of the ways that Thomas deals with it and some of his mechanisms for just overcoming that and pushing forward and making progress. And that's what this is all about, right? You might not always nail it every single time and you might not always have a hit song or get your song picked for licensing opportunities and that kind of thing. But as you can hear from Thomas's interview here, you just got to keep pushing and you got to keep, you know, trying and trying and trying until you finally land these opportunities because it will happen. You just have to take your time. You just have to keep, you know, working on your craft, getting better and better 
and just continue to put out stuff. And eventually it will fall in the hands of the right people. So yeah, I thought that was a really fun conversation with Thomas. And I think that there's a lot that you can take away from this, especially if you're someone who's thinking about getting into composing music for film and TV. So Thomas, if you're listening to this, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I had a lot of fun with this and I can't wait to have you back because I have so many more questions that we just couldn't fit into this interview. So definitely have to have you back. And I hope that you, the listener, found this really helpful and that you gained a lot of great stuff from it. And if you did, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and also make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. That is where I help out musicians with creating pro standing recordings from their home studios. And like we said in the interview, Thomas was actually one of my students. So, you know, it's great to see the progress that people are making and, you know, all of the amazing things that my students are working on. So uh, really proud of him. And, you know, we're looking forward to working with you if you're listening to this and you're thinking about how to improve your mixing skills and push forward and accomplish your goals. That's what I focus on inside of my program. So if you're interested in learning more, make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. And I've got a bunch of different programs there for you to check out. Or if you're interested in learning about one-on-one coaching, that is also an option that I have as well. If you're interested in learning about the coaching side of things, make sure to shoot me an email. Email address is info at MasterYourMix.com. And just shoot me an email with the word coaching in it. And I'll send you an email to learn a little bit more about you to see how I can help you. And if it seems like a good fit, then I would love to work with you. I only work with people who I truly believe I can help. So if you're interested in learning more about getting one-on-one help, I would absolutely love to do that. Once again, just send an email to info at masteryourmix.com with the word coaching in it. And I'll get back to you about that. So that is it for this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the very end. And I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com.